Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel pretty good. I feel like a, a hungry slug. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like an ice cube in a fry later. Whoa, you're not lasting long. <laughs> you never got to work in food service, huh? I did. Well, I, I worked in a catering kitchen. Oh, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, so I actually didn't do too much frying, though. Okay. Almost, almost if you, none. If you throw an ice cube in a fryer later, it sounds like a, a demon or something. It's, it's a very really? intense sound. Yeah. My my largest experience with a fryer later, you'll laugh at this, was when I was working at that catering company one day. You know, like when you work for small family businesses, you always end up doing some weird, weird shit. And uh, one day they were like, okay, we have this like fry later that's like old from the 70s that we've never used, we like haven't used for a while, but we know we can use it. So we, they put it in the middle of the parking lot and they were like, clean the shit out of this. Oh, and I was like, what? it was like a, a whole machine, like front and back, like in like the, like the fry basket and everything. I had to clear, clean everything with this like industrial rust solvent. <laughs> yeah, those get dirty. That's gross. Yeah, I feel like intense. everyone should have to work. I feel like everyone should have to work for just a little bit in food service so you don't act like a dickhead at restaurants. Right. And also I feel yeah. like every every adolescent should experience a food dumpster, which is like the most yeah. horrifying hellscape of all humanity. <laughs> Do you remember like the exactly. food dumpsters wherever you worked? Oh of course. Yeah. I was like, they, for a while. they are horrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Shitty book reports. A, Here we are. Yeah. Shitty jobs podcast. <laughs> Shitty jobs. So, uh, I've got a game for this week. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, brand it's a new game. game. With a very, yeah, yeah. It's a game with a flimsy structure, but let's see how it works. Okay. It's gonna start with uh, start with a story. So thinking about back in the day, uh, when I got my first MP3 player, maybe like 2003, 2004, around that time. Right. I was all psyched, you know, I saved up money for a long time, and then I bought like a, uh, a whopping uh, <laughs> cutting edge two gigabyte SD card. Damn. You remember when that was a lot? Yeah, of course. I remember when sub gigabyte was a lot, when megabytes were a lot. Yeah, it was like $200, <laughs> um, which is, is ridiculous now. And then, you know, I was like, fuck yeah, I... Um, I didn't, and then I realized that it that was only going to hold like I don't know twenty something albums mm-hmm. after formatting like cheats you out of some of that space. So then my my teenage brain was like, okay, I've got it. I'm going to use this tool. Uh, I'm going to lower the bit rate from like MP3 quality, which is like 320 kilobits per second. Yep. That means like yeah, thousands of bits per second folks um which is like you know it's like reducing the amount of data that can flow mm-hmm. uh, in a given time and you're like you're cutting you just re- out you reduce the, the quality yeah yeah you're cutting out all the high and low frequencies that give it like a good sound <laughs> so anyways i compressed the shit out of like a lot of my music i made it like 56k or something and it sounded like garbage but like i didn't really care i was happy sacrifice just, like, you sacrifice quality for quantity exactly um, so I was thinking about that. I was, you know, it was, and then like I had the uh, connecting thought, like what would happen if you could do that same sort of thing to a book? You know, mm-hmm. let's say you're packing for a trip, uh, right? And you want to bring like a bunch of books, but you have really limited space. Like, how would you condense or compress a book? And I'm <laughs> ignoring technology here. <laughs> would you, um, would you take out every other chapter, maybe? Well, like yeah, I mean, we're getting we're getting into a bridged territory, which is very dangerous for for <laughs> book nerds because, like, like I get in I get insulted when I see like abridged things, and that's actually something that you find a lot when you're like bargain bin shopping at like thrift shops and stuff like that. It's like, oh, sick! I'm gonna get like this edition of this book that I've been looking for a while, and then you just see somewhere in the cover or something that it's like an abridged version. It's like, nah, I can't touch that shit. Yeah, I yeah. can't. Like, at what? <laughs> At what point does it become unrecognizable? You know, let's say you took out every other chapter. Would that work? How about deleting every fourth word? You know, what are you Ooh, left with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is what it you, recognizable or, at all? 
Or you could just go, um, this might help a little bit. Like if you went, uh, who's that guy that I hate on the podcast who wrote all the pretty horses? I'm blanking. Oh, Cormac, Cormac McCarthy. McCarthy. You could just say, take out all punctuation. Like that would save yeah. a, little bit of, a little bit of data. <laughs> it's like the opposite of trying to reach the uh, page like right. requirement for homework and stuff. Or you but, could take um, out the labels of the page numbers. Yeah, yeah. So what I landed on was, you know, what if you took out, um, what if you took out the second sentence through the second to last sentence, <laughs> everything in between, <laughs> and shortened it to the length of a fortune cookie? What is, right. what are you left with? And this is what we're going to find out in the new SBR classic game, uh, first in, last out. Ooh, first <laughs> in, this. last out. Oh, this is, this is actually a really good idea. First sentence, last sentence. Let's start with okay. the obvious one. And you can either guess or I'll just tell you what the book is. Or oh, I'm guessing. We, okay, I'm guessing. No, uh, okay, okay, okay. If, if you want to, we're just going to see how this actually works. I'll guess, the but first, I also think it's just like a cool idea. All right, first one. And I've had to put, uh, I've had to take out all the books ahead of time. So I'm not like searching for the first page because sometimes they're hard hmm. to find it's introductions and shit. All right. First sentence. <laughs> Call me Ishmael. <laughs> right. And then. I know the book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, small foals flew screaming over the yet yawning gulf. A sullen white surf beat against its steep sides, then all collapsed, and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5,000 years ago. Whoa. Okay, so work. now read it all together. Read it all together with no interruption. Call me Ishmael. Now small foals flew screaming over the yet yawning gulf. A sullen white surf beat against its steep sides, then all collapsed, and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5,000 years ago. Dude, that's insane. Moby Dick is the novel. <laughs> condensed. Moby Dick, Moby Dick the five, condensed. The five-second reading. Um, that's really interesting, actually, because the final sentence that has that screaming or whatever, now it made me think of the famous first sentence of Gravity's Rainbow, which is, you know, a screaming comes across the sky. So it almost like sounded like, you know, Pynchon was like writing something about the ocean or something like that. Yeah. That was weird. That was cool, though. All right. Next one. All right. The studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink flowering thorn. It was not till they had examined the rings that they recognized who it was. Whoa, this is game is sick, dude. Um, I, I have, li like, no clue. A studio... With like flowery stuff, but then it they didn't know, they didn't know the ring. Can you say the last one again? Uh, this one gets even better if I make it the last two sentences. He was okay. withered, wrinkled, and loathsome of vis visage. It was not till they had examined the rings that they recognized who it was. Huh. I still don't know so what book is, it is, but it's like this yeah. is the picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, the studio, the painting. Yeah, some guy dies of old age and rots away. Yeah. Super, super compressed beyond Super compressed, but it's also like, it's it's the same thing that we're finding with um, Styles from Nowhere, styles. where it's like, yeah. if, you, if you really do like this first sentence, last sentence thing, like that encapsulates the book. Like authors aren't stupid, you know? It's like- yeah. It already talks about an art studio, and at the end, it's talking about his death. Like, you know, it's it's tight. Yeah, here's here's one that's super tight. Uh, in that same vein, when Mary Lennox was sent to Misselthwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. And by his side, with his head up in the air and his eyes full of laughter, walked as strongly and steadily as any boy in York Yorkshire. Hmm. I don't know the book, but it is an interesting combination. If you know the book, it, it it's like, you know, perfect kind of beginning and end. Uh, it's The it? Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson. The Burnett. Secret Garden. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So you got the, the uh, sad child in the beginning and the kid who can walk at the end. It's like right. perfect. Perfect. Yeah, dude, it's so, like, it's crazy. I don't, like, I wonder if anyone has ever considered, you know, 
like like you go and take like a novel writing course at a school or something like that and it's like yo what's your first sentence what's your last sentence you better (laughs) be on that shit yeah all right next one if you'd like a story about how i won my basketball letter and achieved fame love and fortune don't read this (laughs) okay i stood there and did the human act as well as possible (laughs) whoa basketball acting like a human uh, oh, if you do the last two sentences, I I did not do the ape act. I stood there and did the human act as well as possible. Is this a is this that Beatty book? White. Uh, it's not no. Baby, is it? No, uh, it's sci-fi. Okay, I thought it might be the White Boy Shuffle, but no. What is it? This is uh, very far away from anywhere else by Ursula K. Le Guin. Ooh, interesting. I tweeted out recently on our on our Twitter account about how in Stranger Things three in one of the final scenes in one of the fi- in the final episode of this new Stranger Things that uh, one of the characters is reading a Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula nice. Le Guin. It's awesome too because it's the edition that I read that was in the Tallinn Public Library when we were growing up. <laughs> Sweet. It's like this purple cover from the eighties. Really good one. So here's this. This next one should be good. Because this guy um, focuses on his writing on, like, the sentence level for sure. Right, okay. The magician's underwear had just been found in a cardboard suitcase floating in a stagnant pond on the outskirts of Miami. Let Amanda be your pine cone. (laughs) Sounds like Tom Robbins. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another well, which, roadside which attraction. Which one is it? Another roadside attraction. Okay. Debut. Dude, how the hell do I, like if you know an author, it's like you know. <laughs> you know? It's weird. You know, the, the these I guess this is how people rise to the top, really, of being like that, <laughs> you know, that unique, that exacting. Yeah. She came along the alley and up the back steps the way she always used to. For the fog to burn away, and for something else this time, somehow, to be there instead. Mm, this one doesn't work as well as I was hoping for. <laughs> mm. What is it? All right, let's, let's add a little bit of um, resolution to this. Let's add some more KBPS. Let's go two sentences. Okay. She, she came along the alley and up the back steps the way she always used to. Doc hadn't seen her for over a year. For a restless blonde and a stingray to stop and offer him a ride. For the fog to burn away and for something else this time, somehow, to be there instead. You just need a little bit of higher quality to get that pension in. Exactly. <laughs> in- inherent vice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what's funny is that, yeah, I think because pension's style, obviously very famous for his style, but more disparate than some of those other authors. It definitely, his first sentence, last sentence might not be as strong. <laughs> it's something to think Kinda about, like, Pynchon. We know you're a listener. Yeah. Like you Dude, reduce could the, be, the uh, maybe, I don't know. Pynchon um, could be a listener. He has like infinite knowledge <laughs> of all subjects. <laughs> yeah. Does he mention podcasts in any of his books? I don't know. The village of Holcomb stands on the high wheat plains of western Kansas, a lonesome area that other Kansans call out there. Then, starting home, he walked toward the trees and under them, leaving behind him the big sky, the whisper of wind voices and the wind-bent wheat. Hmm. Some, like, American author or something. Uh, I don't know. Who is it? This is not very revealing, even however far I stretch, uh, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So well, you would get that. You would, If you knew, clues. if I knew In Cold Blood better, maybe, because, you know, like, it's all, like, the crime that happens and everything. All right, <laughs> here's one. Long, long ago, in a deep, dark forest, far from civilization, beyond a towering range of, well, you get the idea. <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> it seems Bacterian couldn't dish it out, but he couldn't take it. Could dish okay. it out, but he couldn't take it. Do it one more time. <laughs> Both of them. What? They're like walking in the woods, and it's like sarcastic, and then he could dish it. What? Long, long ago in a deep, dark forest, far from civilization, beyond a towering range of, well, you get the idea. It seems Bacterian could dish it out, but he couldn't take it. 
Bacterian? Who? What the hell? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It sounds like some sorry. You know what it sounds like is that guy who you did the the whale book about Chris Moore or whatever. It sounds like like one of like sarcastic writing like he would do or something. No, nah, this is a this is some wild card shit. This is the Dragon Ball manga, the first one. What? You can't pull out the fucking <laughs> Dragon Ball manga. I did the first panel, the last panel. <laughs> All right. So oh, this is incredibly. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And the last sentence of Harry Potter uh, and I'm the going Sorcerer's home. Stone. <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer. Whoa, that's weird how it's like so connected to it's like not even like part of the wizarding world. Yeah, it starts at the home, back at the home. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so yeah, that was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Is it? Is it? <laughs> it's Sorcerer's Stone in America, but like Philosopher's yes. Stone everywhere else. Yeah. Why did they change that? Why? How is that like a regional thing where it's like Americans don't want to hear about philosophy? Like what? <laughs> I don't know. I guess no. You know, you know what? I think there might be some strange UK stuff about like censoring a word like sorcerer. Like, did you know that the like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were, like, heavily censored. In the UK? Like, because, yeah, because they had some strange problem with, like, ninjas and, like, the concept of ninjas. Like, look it up. It's, it's fucking <laughs> weird, but it, it's true. It's true. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but that originates from the UK, so so I guess maybe she said, oh, since we're going out to the US, I actually wanted to call it the Sorcerer's Stone? I, I guess so. Yeah, that, it, that must be it. Huh. Okay. There's got to be a, some some crazy reason like that. Well, you got to look that up. We'll get J.K. Rowling yeah. on the podcast, I'm sure. But yeah, I think that's a cool. This is a cool game. The first first sentence, last sentence. Uh, it's kind of yeah, like awesome. You know, the the little bit further along you go, you know, you increase it to two sentences, three sentences. It becomes like a lot more clear. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Kind of cool. All right. Sweet. So we well, that. Here we are, episode 27. Uh, an odd number means that Mark goes first. For anyone listening to the podcast for the first time, possibly, uh, each of us brings a book every week. Uh, and I don't know what book Mark is about to talk about. He doesn't know what book I'm about to talk about after him. And uh, Mark, take it away. Episode 27. All right. So, um, you know how there's always a German word for describing some real specific stuff? Mm-hmm. Or German yes. words that combine other words. Have you ever heard of a... Uh, I'm going to have a little trouble with this, but... Uh, a build, Bildungsroman? Bildungsroman? Bildungsroman. No. I think you're supposed to say it faster. A Bildungsroman. Bildungsroman. You got to guess at what that might be? No. <laughs> no guess. <laughs> So this is a German word for a novel that deals with one person's formative years or their spiritual education, you know, otherwise known as a coming of age novel. Okay, so it's like the German word for coming of age. Yeah, it shows the, you know, it usually shows the psychological and moral growth of a protagonist from youth to adulthood. Okay. And uh, it's, its translation from German is education novel. Nice. Buildings Roman. For example, you know, you got David Copperfield, something like that. A tree grows in Brooklyn. I guess Harry Potter falls under that, too. Maybe, even you know. though it's seven books. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Star Wars. Um, some people you sometimes call the first Star Wars a coming-of-age story. Yeah, know. yeah. Um, there's some other good German words I wanted to just throw out there for fun. Uh, that was just kind of looking up. Uh, more things that are hard to pronounce. Uh, Frem sham, which translates to stranger shame, which is like the opposite mm. of Schadenfreude. Yeah, what's you know, the Schadenfreude? That, that's the one I know, but I forget what it means. Schadenfreude is pleasure in someone else's pain or you know uh, ah, misfortune. Okay, but, I, th I know there's another German word. I thought Schadenfreude or whatever was. Um, there's another German word that's like the the feeling that. Um, when you realize that other people live the like that like live a life basically like everyone oh. <laughs> is the main everyone is the main character in their own 
life right yeah but then when you look out at like the masses you know like you look at a crowd of people it's like wow each of those people is like leading a life where i am just like the extra <laughs> yeah that's a uh, tough that's why you gotta just ignore that constantly um <laughs> turn that off fre so fre from sham that's like secondhand embarrassment you've also got uh this one's great um backpfeifengesicht mm. aka a face that should get a slap across the cheek. Wow. Nice. <laughs> Just an annoying face that, that an, an, annoying enough to make you want to smack that person, which is. Who's that? that we don't have the, a word for that. The most famous person in our modern times for that is probably that guy, the pharma bro or whatever, Martin, Martin Schrakel or oh, whatever. Shrelly? Yeah. Shrelly? People always, people always yeah. say that he's <laughs> like, he's got one of those faces. Punchable face. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, the book I have this week is a good example of a build Bildungsroman. That's the last time I'm going to say that. <laughs> and it's uh, it's by an author that I've heard about so many times, but never got around to reading. Uh, so that the book I've got today is 1971's Lives of Girls and Women by Alice Munro. Whoa, awesome, cool. Yeah, I want to hear about Alice Munro because it's like. She's another like bookshelf person where it's like, you know, you got to get there eventually, but yeah. Yeah. So she's the, uh, a 2013 Nobel prize winning author. Um, she's a Canadian. Uh, she's, oh, you know, what? I think I've, short stories. Yeah. I've read some, what's the collection of her short stories. It's like the most famous one. I don't know. Cause this was my introduction to her. Yeah, I've read one. <laughs> I've read some of her short stories. She is super good. So this is actually her only novel. Well, okay. Lives of girls and women. Um, so the thing is, the thing is, though, this book is kind of structured as if it were a short story collection, but the stories have a common protagonist. Dance of the Happy Shades is um, is one that of was her debut. Works. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. So, Continue. <laughs> So yeah, these are um, this is her second work, and it's her only novel. It's kind of um, up to debate online whether it is a novel or not, but it's a common okay. protagonist uh, by the name of Del Jordan. So you know, it's a story. It's the story of Del Jordan, the girl, and Del Jordan, the woman. You know, she's growing up in the small town of Jubilee in Ontario. Uh, so I want to talk more about Alice Munro's life because this, this is where she's actually from. Uh, so Alice Ann Munro. Uh, she was born in southwestern Ontario in, uh, I think, 1931. I forgot to leave it in my notes, but pretty sure that's when it was. Uh, so in addition to the 2013 Nobel Prize in Literature, she also won the 2009 Man Booker International Prize for Lifetime Achievement. Okay. Um she began writing as a teenager. She studied English at the University of Western Ontario for a couple of years, left to pursue writing and, you know, start a family. Uh, in 1963, she and her husband opened a bookstore, Monroe's Books uh, in Victoria, up in mm. Canada, which was actually a really successful bookstore and is still open, even though they divorced in 1972. Well, every book nerd's fantasy. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. like a really cool like bucket list <laughs> destination for fans of hers. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So her first collection of short stories, like you said, was uh, 1968's Dance of the Happy Shades. Uh, super highly acclaimed in Canada. I think she won the top literary prize. Um, she's published many, many short story collections since then. Uh, and yeah, like I said, this book lives of girls and women it's um her second release so it's her attempt to fight off the uh famed sophomore slump <laughs> so i know you've you've discussed a faulkner book on the podcast i've discussed flannery o'connor before uh, which is pretty cool because monroe's like her settings and her stories are often compared to these gothic authors uh from like the rural south mm -hmm. so they enough so that they've kind of her works have kind of been called Southern Ontario Gothic. <laughs> I was going to say, that's interesting because she's from the exact opposite, you know, region of North, <laughs> North America. Well, relative to her country, she's in the deep South. Right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and yeah, you've also brought up, uh, you've also covered Chekhov, right? Like Correct. she draws comparisons uh, to Chekhov due to the structure of her short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I what I had always heard about Monroe is like the strength of her characters, like how vivid and unique she can make them in like a small amount of time dealing with like the short story kind of structure. And like, I think that, you know, yeah, her predilection towards short stories helps in that respect. Like you've got to have a rich description that's like compact. And uh, yeah, it turns out she's uh, incredible at it. And you can picture just about every person in your head shortly after they're introduced. Turns out based on that Nobel prize that she's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As advertised. I just want to read the first couple pages of this book because it's uh, right off the bat just introduces a character. It's very vivid. Cool. We spent days along the Wawanash River helping Uncle Benny fish. We caught the frogs for him. We chased them, stalked them, crept up on them along the muddy riverbank, under the willow trees, and in marshy hollows full of rat tails and sword grass that left the most delicate, at first invisible, cuts on our bare legs. Old frogs knew enough to stay out of our way but we did not want them. It was the slim, young, green ones, the juicy adolescents that we were after, cool and slimy. We squished them tenderly in our hands, then plopped them in a honey pail and put the lid on. There they stayed until Uncle Benny was ready to put them on the hook. He was not our uncle or anybody's. He stood a little way out in the shallow brown water where the muddy bottom gives way to pebbles and sand. He wore the same clothes every day of his life, everywhere you saw him. Rubber boots, overalls, no shirt, a suit jacket, rusty, black, and buttoned, showing a V of tough red skin with a tender edge of white. A felt hat on his head had kept its narrow ribbon and two little feathers, which were entirely darkened with sweat. Though he never turned around, he knew if we put a foot in the water. You kids want to splash in the mud and scare off the fish, you go and do it someplace else. Get off my riverbank. It was not his. Right here, where he usually fished, it was ours. But we never thought of that. To his way of thinking, the river and the bush and the whole of Greenwich Swamp more or less belonged to him because he knew them better than anybody else did. He claimed he was the only person who had been right through the swamp, not just made little trips in around the edges. He said there was a quicksand hole in there that could take down a two-ton truck like a bite of breakfast. In my mind, I saw it shining with a dry liquid roll. I had it mixed up with Quicksilver. He said there were holes in the Wawanash River that were 20 feet deep in the middle of summer. He said he could take us to them, but he never did. He was prepared to take offense at a glimmer of doubt. You fall into one of them, then you'll believe me. He had a heavy black mustache, fierce eyes, a delicate predatory face. He was not so old as his clothes, his mustache, his habits would lead you to believe. He was the sort of man who becomes a steadfast eccentric almost before he is out of his teens. In all his statements, predictions, judgments, there was a concentrated passion. In our yard once, looking up at a rainbow, he cried, You know what that is? That's the Lord's promise that there isn't ever going to be another flood. He quivered with the momentousness of this promise as if it had just been made, and he himself was the bearer of it. So yeah. Just super Succinct. dense with description, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, you have a, you have a mental image, like right away. But anyways, in this book, Del Jordan, she's like she's the young narrator of each chapter as we kind of progress through her life, and she's really she's fully ingrained in this small town life, uh, small town of Jubilee, even though she you know often feels like an outsider. And, like, a lot of it is her being confronted with some of, like, the harsh realities of growing up, you know, like, school and the social elements of school and, of course, uh, relationships, religion, love, etc. You know, a lot of it, a lot of it centers around her mother and her two aunts and, you know, Dell's like, her complex feelings towards them. Um, But it's also a lot on how limiting life could be for a, a woman in the 40s and 50s even for like a bright young woman like Dell as she you know weighs the options laid out in front of her mm-hmm. um and it's like a, it's a great set of stories of you know self-discovery with like a perfect sort of mix of charm and bitterness 
and uh and yeah alice monroe she's really damn talented as a storyteller like i definitely want to read her short stories now do you do you remember anything from uh that collection that you'd read yeah um i i i can't remember specifics i read it like a few years ago and they're just shorts that kind of come and go but i do remember it's like the same thing like you said as advertised with how like you know all of her award-winning kind of stuff is like i do remember because of my like proclivity for novels versus short stories it was like okay i'm gonna read these short stories like am i gonna get into them and i remember finishing a few of them and just being like damn it was good it was enough like it was just you know she's as advertised a master story short storyteller so yeah super dense and it's like uh, whereas you know um the flannery o'connor ones kind of have those gut punches in there like these I mean, I guess I don't know, but these these this book was structured like a bunch of little short stories. So like each kind of chapter had its own like moment, um, and then you know they didn't have to be gut punches. They like could be just more of a subtle moment, but it was still really impactful. Yeah, I would say that the, I would remember that from the shorts too. It wasn't gut punches and like oh some dramatic thing happened. It was like oh you like began and end it perfectly on like this subtle emotion. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't read enough to be able to put this label, but like, uh, I don't know if Southern Southern Gothic sort of fits, but it's more like, uh, I don't know. It's not as gloomy. But um, so so one thing I thought was cool in one like one positive review of this book that I came across, like I saw the line. Uh, she has John Steinbeck's gift of watching human beings gripped in sloth, envy, lust, and other sins, and bringing them to life with a splash of wit. Hmm. And I just want, I think, I just, I selfishly want her to like make like a under the dome ish giant book <laughs> with a bunch of characters, like <laughs> eighty. I want eighty yeah. people. Break your style for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> I want a thousand pages on my desk by Monday. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So if you're listening, um, give that a shot. Uh, so yeah, that's what I have for Lives of Girls and Women, 1971. Um, but you know, now we have to do a one-star review. Right. Uh, I gave you like a little snippet of a good review, but here's the bad one. Uh, user Brondo17 says... Brondo. This book is is utter garbage. If you like watching grass grow, paint dry, or ice melt, you've found the right book. First, nothing happens, followed by more nothing. But then something amazing happens. The book ends. (laughs) And there you go. Nice. (laughs) Well, Mark, you must enjoy uh, watching ice melt. (laughs) According to Brando. What was his thing? (laughs) Brondo, Brondo 17. Brondo, okay, nice. All right, um, that was awesome. Good job. I, Alice Monroe, yeah, like I said, someone that you see around all the time, and it's just one of those people you... It's it's almost like no excuse of not getting into a famous short story writer because it's like, oh, yeah, I want to read her someday. And it's like, well, that would take, like, you know, 15 minutes, so you should probably do it. <laughs> um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, My book this week comes by way of basically my selection for this book comes from cultural necessity, like basically something that you hear referenced in so many different things that you that I kind of like it was eventually like, okay, that's enough. I saw it on sale for super cheap. I saw it on sale for super cheap at my local library. So, you know, support your local bookshops and your libraries and stuff. And I was like, okay, this is the end. It has to happen. Um, But I'm going to play for you first a a short clip, which is just one of the many instances of this book coming into my life and making me curious about it. So please enjoy this, this audio experience. I'm ready. You haven't heard anything from you, Niles. Oh, I don't think we're exactly in Niles' wheelhouse. (laughs) Beg your pardon. Come on, Niles, I've heard your stories. They're not the steamiest stuff. Obviously, you've forgotten the semester I spent living in Paris. I'll have you know I had a torrid affair with a married woman. 
Really? I'm sorry, Niles. I had no idea. It's not something I boast about. The attraction was simply overpowering. Every Thursday, two o'clock, the Hotel de Bologna. We'd arrive separately, climb the stairs, open the door. Ooh la la. (laughs) (laughs) What an embrace. Afterwards, she'd whisper to me, there's something so sweet in your eyes, and it does me so much good, said Emma Bovary. (laughs) If you're going to steal a love life, don't steal from the classics here, Basil. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, a a clip from one of uh, Mark and I's favorite shows, Frasier. Could you hear that? It kind of, like, got messed up. It's a little quiet, but I could hear it. I was trying okay. to guess what it was before, but is this? I think I heard it right. Is this uh, Gustave Flaubert? Yes, this is Emma Bovary. Madame I mean, Bovary. this is Madame Bovary. Yeah. So this week, I in one week, which I was a little bit too ambitious, I spent the like the first half of today reading like half of this book because I thought, oh yeah, the edition that I happen to have is a pretty thin one, but I think it was. Deceptively long, one, for being a novel from the late 1800s, and two, just like my actual edition, I think has like smaller print than I think. And then I was like, yeah, it won't take me long to read it. And it took me a little while. But so I burned through it. Yeah, yeah, thin paper. I I burned through it today. Yeah, dude, some books do have that, like that Bible paper where it's like, oh, this isn't going to be that long. And then it's like super long. (laughs) Um, It's like rolling paper. But yeah, going going along with your theme of like, you know, as advertised, it's basically like, you know, this is one of those things where it was like you've seen and heard references to Madame Bovary so many times that it's sort of like it's not really any excuse. Like I wasn't forced to read it for any of my, you know, class curriculum or anything like that. So I know yeah, some people did. Yeah, some people did definitely well. had to read Madame Required. Bovary. Um, but I don't know why I, it somehow slipped through the cracks for me, but, you know, I saw it in my library and I, and it was on sale. Of course, a classic novel like this, what did it cost? Like 50 cents or something like that. So I picked it up and, uh, I can say just like Alice Monroe, um, Madame Bovary as advertised, there's a reason why this book is so damn famous and it's because it's crazy good. (laughs) It's so crazy good. Like it's, you know, it's. You have to have the patience and, you know, be you have to be a book nerd. You have to be somebody who is going to say, okay, I'm going to take half of my Friday to read, you know, a novel from the late 1800s. But um, this book is ridiculous. Like, it's super tight. I mean, actually, I have some criticisms for it being like weirdly at the same time, super tight, but also like kind of drifts around, like actually taking from your... from your new game mark i am going to lay down one of my largest criticisms by doing the first sentence last sentence thing with madame bovary okay so one of my main criticisms will come out after i read this um so the beginning sentence is we were in class when the headmaster came in followed by a new fellow not wearing the school uniform and a school servant carrying a large desk and the last sentence is he has just received the cross of the Legion of Honor. <laughs> so in criticism to Flaubert and probably an indictment on the fact that this book is so interesting in the development of women as literary characters, but also in my in my estimation, a little bit negative about it. Both of those sentences have fuck all to do with Emma Bovary. <laughs> like that like both of those things like you're not as tight as you thought you were bro because like both of those sentences is like the first one is about her husband who kind of starts as like the main character until like 15 pages in and then the last sentence is about the chemist who lives in their village um opposite their house and it's like that has nothing to do with emma like some of the stuff <laughs> in this book like I actually wrote a note to myself 13 pages in. I think that it's like the kind of thing where, first of all, let's just say that you can't really shit on Flaubert because like literary history is definitely happening when this book is being published. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But, you know, 15 pages into this book, Charles Bovary remains like the main character and it goes through his life like really rapidly and in a, in a, in a way like... 
I think sort of haphazardly where it's like, okay, that first sentence was like him coming into the classroom as a young boy. And then 13 pages in, we've gone from him being the new boy at school to him becoming a doctor to him being married to his first wife dying. And and that's page 13. So it's like, (laughs) like what? Like, I, I feel like there was almost like a sense of like, you know, he's going to write this book about Madame Bovary, but it's like, first I have to like mount this story by telling you about the main man of the story. So that was like a little bit clunky, but let's, you know, bring the dial back because I'm someone who's reading it in 2019 versus somebody who published this um, in 1856. So let's take a dial it back and I'll start to, I'll describe to you Flaubert and then I'll talk to you about Madame Bovary. And actually I learned some really badass stories surrounding this book as well. So um, first to say that yes, like I said, classic as advertised. This book is crazy good. Flaubert is an amazing writer, like literally amazing, like so ridiculously good. He goes on to influence all of your favorite French novelists and the world beyond. Like he's crazy amazing. But um, just to start out with some of the stories from his life, Flaubert, he um, is born in uh, in... Rouen or Rune, which is in northern France, um, uh, uh, like a part of Upper Normandy in 1821. He only lives until 1880 at the age of 58. Um, Madame Bovary is actually his debut novel. He wrote things before this um, that friend. He was kind of like auditioning stuff with friends, like literary friends of his. Um, and Madame Bovary comes out as a serialization in the Paris Review in 1856. So. Um, this is his got, first wait, novel. Yep. I got to get this thought out really quick. Uh, get it out. <laughs> this is like a relatable feeling for people out there. With If you do what Trevor and I do and, you know, you read friend, you read books with your friends and stuff, you talk about them, all that. I'm like, I have this like slight jealousy that you've read this. And it, it's funny because it's kind of like a Niles Frazier like thing. Because I'm like, <laughs> I've, I've wanted... <laughs> It's one of those big names that I've like wanted to read, you know? Right. And now that I've read it, it's like, are you going to be able to do it for the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I got to it first on the podcast. You bastard. You snide. You You knew what you were doing. Now you at least have to wait a little bit. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So Flaubert, he's, you know, born in Paris. He's a law student. He gives up being a law student because of, quote unquote, epilepsy. You think he has like a few panic attacks or some epileptic fits or something like that. I find that that term epilepsy is very slippery, especially in the late 1800s. Like I was talking about in the Dostoevsky novel, The Idiot. It's like, yeah, this guy's epileptic slash he just has fainting fits from anxiety. So I feel like that term has developed over time. Um, So eventually Flaubert, he like basically just settles back like in his home town like he goes back has like you know he lives in the french countryside he eventually does travel a lot after he becomes a famous novelist after madame bovary kind of like blows up the scene um i don't know too much about his life i just read some quick stuff on wikipedia he's pretty scandalous sex wise like he was and he was honest about it which is interesting and which goes towards the significance of madame bovary because he wrote letters to friends being like yeah i just hire prostitutes like i have sex with them like wherever i go he also um engaged in homosexual activities which for at that time was like obviously like you know that was in a different context and in a different era. So, but he was honest with people about it in his life. And uh, he was he, he also, some of his love letters have survived from some of his mistresses and stuff like that. So that is all gives context into Madame Bovary, which is a novel about Emma Bovary, who is a woman who's living in the same place that um, Flaubert grew up. It's like a, like the town in the novel is named as the same place where he grew up. And um, she's basically a woman who, as part of, part of like her lot in life, not only as a woman in this time period, but also just as, um, as I learned through like the criticism reading about this um, book, um, it's a, it's a time in French history where it's called the July Monarchy, which is the reign of Louis-Philippe I, um, where basically like this was a time when the middle class of 
French society was expanding. So it was like the lines were blurring between like aristocratic rich people and a lower class of like insanely poor working people. So Madame Bovary occurs, you know, when I picked up Madame Bovary, I was like, cool, I'm going to read this novel, which obviously is going to happen within the confines of Paris. Cause that's like all novels from then is like the people in Paris, like blah, blah, blah. Um, this actually happens in the countryside and apparently his like the effect of this writing was that he was very anti-bourgeois, which is basically like somebody in the upper, uh, like the middle or upper to middle class who is kind of like trying to develop themselves in some ways, maybe falsely. And Emma Bovary is definitely um, like guilty Frazier of that. Yeah, like Fraser and Niles. Exactly. <laughs> like this is def- like, like definitely relates to the idea that. So Emma is someone who she's not really she's internally unhappy with her lot in life. She's married to a guy like pretty traditional, like when she was a young girl, married this guy, Charles. He's like a mediocre country doctor and he travels around the countryside like helping people. But, you know, he's not some genius or whatever. And um, she basically is never, ever happy either in her relationships or with her station in life. And the book just concerns her kind of the influence on her life that leads her towards being a mistress, like being unfaithful to her husband and all the different kind of little like categories that she goes through in terms of like, at first she's married and she's like, wow, this is romantic. It's just like the books that I've read got like growing up as a little girl in the, in like the convent. Like now I have a husband and I'm going to live this romantic life. And he just, Flaubert has a way of perfectly describing kind of the, um, the decay of love basically like oh yeah she gets used to being with her husband and then they go to this fancy ball and she sees like a like a local magistrate who's like dancing you know with the girls and she and it like ignites a fire for romanticism and then that leads her on to the next person who you know everybody in their life has the potential for romance with people who kind of like come in and out of their life and every time that emma is in a kind of state of ennui with her life and her station in life she is passionately gonna go after being you know cheating on charles or like kind of you know she she wants this like extreme romanticism which he has the a brilliant way of describing like doesn't really exist um just to give before i dive into quotes from the novel i have a few selected out just because to understand flaubert you have to understand that he's just like He's someone who is like, he's so intellectual that as you're reading him, it's like one of those people where one, you know, he's a genius. And two, like you do have to, because there's a novel from France in the 1850s, you're going to have to look up a few things like vocabulary wise. Mm -hmm. But he's just amazing. Like the way that he combines thoughts about love and decay and like your emotional state is also something that came forward as like when he burst onto the scene, people were like, yo, fuck romanticism. Like, it's all about realism. Like, Flaubert, it's all about realism. And from the Wikipedia page of Madame Bovary, I'm just going to read the literary significance and reception um, section because it'll surprise you in a few ways, Mark. And it's also just a laundry list of people who held him in high regard. So, nice. Long I know style- Julian Barnes is on there. Yes. Uh, yeah, he is. Um, he wrote a book called Flaubert's Parrot. Right. So literary significance and reception from Wikipedia. Long established as one of the greatest novels, the book has been described as a perfect work of fiction. Henry James wrote, Madame Bovary has a perfection that not only stamps it, but that makes it stand almost alone. It holds itself with such a supreme, unapproachable assurance assurance as both excites and defies judgment. Marcel Proust praised the grammatical purity of Flaubert's style, while Vladimir Nabokov said that stylistically it is prose doing what poetry is supposed to do. Similarly, in his preface to his novel The Joke, Milan Kundera wrote, not until the work of Flaubert did prose lose the stigma of aesthetic inferiority. Ever since Madame Bovary, the art of the novel has been considered equal to the art of poetry. Giorgio de de Chirico said that in his opinion, from the narrative point of view, the most perfect book is Adam Bovary by Flaubert and Julian Barnes called it the best novel that's ever been written. The novel exemplifies the tendency of realism over the course of the 19th century to become 
increasingly psychological concern with the accurate representation of thoughts and emotions rather than of external things. In this way, it precedes the great French novelist Marcel Proust and the 20th century apotheosis James Joyce. So this guy was a big deal. <laughs> Um, yeah. And he started writing stuff that was like, whoa, it's about the mind. It's about, you know, like who cares, like who they are and where they are and whatever. It's about her mind and, and all these things. So um, a few qu quick quotes to pull from the novel. Um, here's, here's something that I singled out. This was on page 67. And it's just uh, Emma. And I think at this point in that she has a few different... Um, She's the mistress to a few people. Um, but this is early on a young man named Leon. They're looking at each other. Had they nothing else to say to one another, yet their eyes were full of a more serious speech. And while they forced themselves to find trivial phrases, they felt the same languor stealing over them both. It was the whisper of the soul, deep, continuous, dominating that of their voices. Surprised with wonder at this strange sweetness, they did not think of speaking of the sensation or of seeking its cause. Coming joys like tropical shores throw over the immensity before them, their inborn softness and odorous wind. And we are lulled by this intoxication without a thought of the horizon that we do not even know. So... Uh, hopefully that gives you like a little bit of like a flavor of, you know, people started reading this guy and they were like, oh, it's prose, but it's as good as poetry. Like, this is crazy. Here's another paragraph that I singled out, page 134. This is actually, there's actually this really interesting character in here. Um, I forget his name at the moment. I'm blanking. But uh, there's a really interesting character in here who kind of picks Emma up as like, he's kind of like a ladies man and she's so vulnerable to her romantic notions that he's like, oh yeah, this guy, like he he's experienced with lonely women and he basically, as soon as he meets her, he's like, she hates her husband and she's lonely, so I'm <laughs> just gonna scoop her up. So uh, this is his impressions of her overly romantic notions. He had so often heard these things said that they did not strike him as original. Emma was like all his mistresses and the charms of novelty gradually falling away like a garment laid bare the eternal monotony of passion that has always the same forms and the same language. He did not distinguish this man of so much of exper experience, the difference of sentiment beneath the sameness of expression. That's, that sentence is so good. I'm just going to repeat it. He did not distinguish this man Rebel. of so much experience, the difference of sentiment beneath the sameness of expression. Because lips libertine and venal had murmured such words to him, he believed but little in the candor of hers. Exaggerated speeches hiding mediocre affections must be discounted, as if the fullness of the soul did not sometimes overflow in the emptiest of metaphors, since no one can ever give the exact measure of his needs, nor of his conception nor of his sorrows, and since human speech is like a cracked tin kettle on which we hammer out tunes to make bears dance when we long to move the stars. It's like, what the fuck? Like, he's so, like, he's so crazy good. Like, to me, that paragraph is, like, kind of deconstructing, like, yeah, like, and, and another thing about this book that's so good, that's so amazing, is that it's all about you are the person who is the omniscient observer of what everyone knows, but no one knows as much as you know about all the characters and everything. So it's like Emma is madly in love with this guy who she thinks is such mm. like an, an opposite of Charles, her husband. And yeah, what you know, like. what does it sound like? <laughs> like Frasier. <laughs> that sounds like Frasier. That sounds like, you know, you know that everyone at the dinner party is not supposed to know what, what you know, but everyone else knows what you know. Yeah. Um, Damn, man. It yeah. just shows you like the references on that show are so calculated. I know, like seriously. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like it's just so amazing. Like the things that Emma believes about this guy, this ladies man is like, she is so in love with him and he's like, yeah, whatever. I've had like dozens of mistresses and like, you know, who cares? Like, you know, whatever. But I think, you know, another like amazing thing that he said in that paragraph is like, Exaggerated, you know, uh, he believed little that exaggerated speeches hiding mediocre affections must be discounted. It's the f as if the fullness of the soul did not sometimes overflow in the emptiest of metaphors. That to me is like, you know, I think as you get older, it's like when you're 16 and you're listening to the Beatles, you're like, the Beatles suck. You know, like you're just like, you know, who cares? Like all they do is say 
I love you so much or whatever. But then as you like get older, it's like, holy shit, you know, even the most simple. That's why like rock classics are rock classics, you know, like these simple kind of things that apply to everyone. Um, yeah. So I thought that that was really good. Um, I did find I was also uh, interested to find obviously the whole time I was reading this book, I was waiting for that quote to come up that Niles quoted like the entire book. I was like, is this going to be the page where he talks about when I look into your eyes? It does me so much good, said Emma Bovary. And I got to say. And this is a cool story that I'm going to dive into about my edition. Uh, Niles and Fraser were reading a different translation than me because I found the sentence that they're talking about, but it's not word for word. But <laughs> it's not word for word what I what I found. So on my edition, which I'm going to get into in a second, has a really cool story behind it. Um, on page 187, Niles's quote was something like, "There's something in your eyes that does me so much good" by Emma Bovary. In my edition, it's. Do not move. Do not speak. Look at me. Something so sweet comes from your eyes that helps me so much. Not does me so much good. So um, different translations. And let me dive into a story about the translation of my book, because this is one of those things, too, is as I was researching Flaubert uh, for the podcast, it just like exploded my brain. This like one story that I heard. So um an interesting thing about Madame Bovary that made it so popular was that once it was serialized in the Paris Review, 1856, there was actually a public forum where people in the government prosecuted the publishers and Flaubert for making something, for publishing something so scandalous. So when this book came out, they were like, this is porn and you are disgusting. Uh, which is really interesting because obviously we now know that everybody and their brother and their mother and their sister all throughout the world. I don't even want to single out French people, but let's just say people cheat on each other. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they like they do that. And so people were really upset with this book. There was actually a public thing where lawyers in the government said we're prosecuting both of you for make, for publishing something so disgusting. And then uh, Flaubert's lawyer, who he made a dedication to in um, my edition, but also, you know, subsequent editions after the trial was over, he got acquitted of all charges. And basically his lawyer said, no, art is art. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Don't be so conservative. And his uh, his lawyer's name was Anton Jules Sennard. And in the cover, in the inside cover of my edition, Flaubert says, permit me to inscribe your name at the head of this book and above its dedication, for it is you before all that I owe its publication. Reading over your magnificent defense, my work is acquired for myself, as it were, an unexpected authority. Accept then here the homage of my gratitude, which how great soever it is, will never attain the height of your eloquence and your devotion. So basically, a lawyer came forth said, hell no, this is art with a capital A. And that was why Flaubert didn't, you know, end up in prison or this book being burned at the stake or whatever is that, you know, it was argued for. And obviously how popular does that make the book after he wins the trial? It's like, everybody's got to read this thing, right? You got to see what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. You got to see what it's about. So that was something really interesting. And then going back to me reading a different edition than Niles and Frazier, um, my edition is actually published, um, in London, this is an English translation in 1886 by a young woman named Eleanor Marx. You may know her father, her father Karl Marx. <laughs> so, and they, in even more insane that Karl Marx's daughter did one of the popular English translations of Madame Bovary. She translates it to English in 1886, and 12 years later, at the age of 18. Uh, at the age of 43 in 1898 she finds out that her husband is cheating on her okay and she poisons herself madame bovary style spoiler alert at the end of this novel emma gets herself into so much financial and emotional turmoil that she kills herself with arsenic and karl marx's daughter did the same exact thing 12 years later damn isn't that insane Life imitating art. Life imitating art. So she translates this novel. Obviously, it's a popular novel to be read in English because it's such, you know, like it's one of the most popular novels of its time. And then she goes, finds out her husband has been cheating on her for several years, had even married an, another like actress behind her back. And she 
takes the poison, writes a note exactly like how Emma does in the book. She takes all this arsenic in the book, writes her, writes her suicide note, and then lies in bed. And Karl Marx's daughter did the same exact thing. Shit. So that was really crazy. Um, and, you know, I think this book went a long way into revolutionizing into people's minds. You know, Emma's the main character. Like I said, I, I think... You know, looking at it from a 2019 lens, it's like, why is like, why do you start the story with Charles and end the story with the chemist and everything like that? But I think we can be a little bit forgiving for how revolutionary he was with, you know, this this woman who is an adulterer being the main character. You don't love her. You don't have to love Emma. She's pretty annoying. She's very it's sort of, you know, like a like an anti hero type of thing where it's like she's just obsessed with like romance. And every time she, you know, gets in trouble with one of her dalliances then she goes running back to charles who suddenly seems so sweet to her and then she's like nah never mind i got sick of this guy now i gotta go you know with some other dude um she bounces back and forth she's pretty crazy sometimes um but yeah i mean it's just an amazing book incredible writing definitely worthy of its classic status um one quote that i the last quote that i'll read from the book which is a little bit out of context from the story, but one that I thought was very fitting for kind of like developing a female main character and kind of revolutionizing the realism in the, in that way is um, this really, this paragraph kind of struck me pretty hard. Page 62 in my edition, Emma is talking about uh, she's currently pregnant and about to have a child with Charles. And this is what she says. She hoped for a son. He would be strong and dark. She would call him George. And this idea of having a male child was like an, une uh, like an expected revenge for all of her impotence in the past. A man at least is free. He may travel over passions and over countries. He may overcome obstacles, taste of the most faraway pleasures. But a woman is always hampered. At once inert and in inflexible, she has against her the weakness of the flesh and legal dependence. Her will, like the veil of her bonnet held by a string, flutters in every wind. There is always some desire that draws her, but some conventionality that restrains. Goddamn, Flaubert. Um, you know, that's just like, that's like an imperfect encapsulation of the novel as well, that I think Emma is someone who is very passionate that perhaps if she was one of the many quarters that she fools around with, she would be perfectly fine. You know, like men have mistresses in 1850s Paris and no one gives a shit. But, um, but the opposite be coming from a woman is like, yeah, she's completely restrained. Like she has legal dependence on her husband and can't really do anything that she's been reading about so passionately in these novels for her entire life. Um, so that's what I have for Madame Bovary. Um, as advertised, so, I have ahead. a question. Do yeah. you think this is a fair book to assign in, like, let's say, high school? Because it sounds just from what you've read, it sounds so dense. And it, isn't it? Is it like three hundred pages plus? Or um, let's see, my funky edition that was uh, just let, that that seemed longer than it should be to me was two hundred and forty-seven pages. So I'm sure some editions are like three hundred, maybe. Yeah, I would say maybe like. Uh, like, yeah, like a high school kid, guy or girl, would probably not have been through. Something that I think would really give you a benefit of the lens of rating Madame Bovary is if you've been through major relationships in your life. So, yeah, I don't think maybe, I don't think it is too fair. I think maybe it's on the syllabus because of its cultural and like literary significance, but that you would probably have to double read it later in life to actually appreciate it. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Um, so my one-star review, it's pretty long for a one-star review, but on Amazon, username Lisa B says, classic, not anymore. Although this is supposed to be one of the greatest novels ever written, I must disagree. Perhaps my modern 20th century education and bias is showing in my evaluation. The language was stulted. Yeah, okay. And I often had a difficult time figuring out which character the author was referring to in a given passage. I could not identify with any of the characters or even like them. Emma Bovary herself is a self-absorbed whiner who constantly lies both to herself and everyone around her. She lives in a fantasy world where everything she does is just and anything that doesn't go her way is the work of someone trying to undermine her. She creates her own problems, she ignores them, then leaves the mess for other people to clean up and suffer the consequences. Charles Bovary is painted as one of the 
the most oblivious men, unable to see his wife's duplicity despite many signs until it's too late. I could go on, but it's not worth my time. Unless you have to read this for a literature class, don't waste yours either. Scathing. Scathing. Um, also, the point of the whole novel is how is how she criticized Emma. So I don't know about you, Lisa. <laughs> but yeah, so, so I've got one last thing to say. Um, so when I was like I said, I, I was thinking about reading this book. I did it like a little bit of research on Flaubert, like maybe two three months ago. Mm -hmm. um, but the book that stuck out to me when I was like looking through his uh, bibliography was his unfinished work, uh, right? The, like published a year after his death called uh, Bouvard a Pecuchet, I think. Mm -hmm. But it, it like I, I read the like Wikipedia entry for it and it just sounds like an insane um, Ulysses-esque work that's like, way 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 too ambitious but it sounds really cool hmm. um so yeah i haven't i haven't read too much about that but what i do know about flaubert is that he was known for working on things for many years like i'm pretty sure madame bovary took a yeah it says here on wikipedia it took five years to write madame bovary um <laughs> And yeah, he's definitely someone who revised his works like sometimes over decades. So uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. But from what I saw from Madame Bovary, which obviously, you know, I'll, I guess I'll find out later in life if this is a standout and that he was, you know, one hit wonder, but I highly doubt it. I think that he's probably <laughs> a, a mega genius and I'm, and I'm ready to, to read some of his other books. Um, yeah, this, this last one, it was like he spent you know, 10 years trying to do it. He read 1500 books. He's like obsessed mm -hmm. over it. And right. it's just about two, it's about two like uh, copy clerks in Paris. And they just like, basically they says they, over the course of years, they flounder through almost every branch of knowledge. So he basically wrote like an, a novel encyclopedia. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm ready for that. <laughs> I'm ready for that from Flaubert because, you know, that sounds like almost like a pension type thing like, that's yeah. what happens right when like novelists are like reaching towards the end of their life they're like i'm gonna write this like insane fucking like <laughs> you know it's gonna be about a rock at the bottom of a river and it's gonna be three thousand pages yeah. um uh but yeah that's it check out check out madame bovary if you haven't been forced to read it for school already and even if you have re read it again especially if you've gone through a few relationships because it's so fucking good um yeah. Thanks for check listening. Yeah, check out Fraser for sure. <laughs> if you skip that one, I don't know what to do with you. Um, thanks for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter, iTunes, wherever podcasts are free, uh, at SBR the podcast. Please search for us, SBR space the space podcast, because because you can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, and whatever you're feeling. See you next time. See you.